New music means new project. This fall, the National Building Museum is bringing together leading black voices in design, art, and architecture for Intersections, a series of dynamic discussions about culture, equity, and representation through the lens of design. Launching September 16th and running through December 14th, Intersections engages nationally recognized black architects, designers, and artists in conversations focused on social justice in the built environment. Through interactive lectures and hands-on workshops, the series is designed to provoke new thinking, spark conversation, enlighten, and empower. In partnership with the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C., Architecture's Political Podcast will dive deeper into some of the topics as well as presenters stemming from this phenomenal series, Intersections. In case you're not from the area, let me tell you a little bit about the National Building Museum. Since it was created in 1980 through an act of Congress, the National Building Museum has transformed the public's understanding of the impact of architecture, engineering, landscape architecture, construction, planning, and design. Through exhibitions, educational programs, and special events, the National Building Museum welcomes visitors of all ages to experience stories about the built world and its power to shape lives, communities, and our future. Links to the Intersection series is in the show notes of each episode, which includes registration that's both in-person and virtual. So check it out. This episode was recorded prior to the National Building Museum's Intersection series. Jonathan Moody was one of the panelists regarding the AIA's Large Firm Roundtable, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. For the life of me, I cannot remember all the panelists that participated in the discussion, but it was an interesting discussion nonetheless. I had a question for them actually, but we ran out of time and I just felt like I just didn't need to go to the individuals to ask that question simply because I was going to get a political answer. So my question was, as they were having a discussion, I, like anybody else, Googled them and looked on their firm's website to see if there's anyone in position that looks like me. Obviously, uh, Jonathan Moody, him being in his position, as well as his father and other individuals in Moody Nolan do look like me. There's also a woman from studios. Obviously she is my complexion and you know, she represents someone that looks like me and it was encouraging to see. The others, not so much. One gentleman in particular recognized that per se going on, going on their website. I remember it, it, addresses certain issues the other two not so much i'm not listing names because i don't want to list the wrong firm name or the wrong person it was it was i'll say interesting i'm not going to say good but it was interesting some of the questions that were asked in regards to individuals with h1 visas it's something that i've talked about i don't think i've talked about it on this podcast maybe in archie mom's I believe that I've talked about that a little bit, but that's something that I've, I haven't really, I haven't focused on any of my episodes. I may have brought it up, but I haven't focused on it. I definitely know individuals who 
are on H-1 visas. And every year we have a discussion of them going back home and renewing their visas. I'm interesting to hear the firm's perspective on it. I understand that if you work on federal projects, you, you aren't able to work on some of the projects if you're not a U.S. citizen. But others, I don't see that as being an issue. I'm kind of curious as far as the firm and uh, what it takes to sponsor someone with an H-1 visa and if it costs the firm money, how much money we're looking at, is it like a liability? And that's why firms don't do it. And then also, I feel like they're being exploited. You know, they're they're pretty much stuck at, at that firm unless they can find another firm to move to that would sponsor them. And so I'm kind of curious how that works on their end. I remember with the whole controversy with SIARC panel that, that someone brought up, a student, I believe, or someone in the audience brought up. But yeah, so yeah, that's that's the basic summary of the panel. But again, this interview took place before the panel. Since then, I ran into Jonathan a couple of times. One, of course, at the intersections discussion and then also at the NOMA conference. As, as far as what this episode is entailed, it's right after the AIA convention, maybe like a couple of weeks afterwards. So that's still fresh on our minds. And so it's, it's, it's a getting to know Jonathan conversation. And I, I thought about titling this episode as I do with the others intersections, but since it took prior to the intersections, I just felt that maybe I'll keep it with a, a conversation with Jonathan Moody. So I hope you enjoy. Here you go. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. So quick, we were at the AIA convention 2022 at the food court area of the convention center to see Obama. You were standing in front of me and I was like, hey, Jonathan, you want to be on my podcast? And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was reminded of all the anxieties around whether or not we were going to get through security and did I do all this stuff appropriately? And don't mess this up was very much like a, <laughs> in the midst of that. Yeah, we'll do a podcast. It'll be fun. <laughs> How was your experience taking a photograph with President Obama? Surreal. The only weird part was I think we were all waiting like, is this really going to happen? We had done all the stuff. We got through security. Now we wait. And then all of a sudden we could see the ripple behind the curtain. We're like, oh, is that people moving? And the thing is over before you know it. And you're like, what, what did I say? What did he say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was he, yours. He yeah. shook, well, it was four of us where, while we were waiting. We were strategically trying to figure out who gets to stand next to him or mm -hmm. what order or whatever. And I think we end up doing like who has the most medals. So mm -hmm. it was Prigmore and Dixon because they, mm -hmm. you know, they're Nomax fellows and then the Whitney and Young medal. When we met him, he shook my hand and he shook um, everybody else's hand. And then he was curious about all the medals. And so mm -hmm. Dixon, oh yeah, this medal's for this. This medal's like, oh, it was very impressive. And then we took a picture and then that was it. Like, yep. quick. <laughs> it's like, it's over before you know it. Yeah. Very nice, very cordial, at least for me, like the reservation or question of like, He's saying this and acting like, oh, yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. And I'm like, he, is he really going to remember? How many people does he meet? And no. yeah, so. Did I yeah. leave an impression? Like, I know, I, I know. I was just happy I didn't like faint or fall out or anything. <laughs> <I know. embarrassing>, so. <laughs> yeah. Was he as tall as you thought he was? 
Yes. And I, I, I've been close enough to know how tall he actually is. It was what I expected. I was a little bit prepared in that regard. So. I was like, oh, was wow, he, you're, you're tall. And he's a tiny guy, too. I didn't get the hug, right? So I only got yes. like the the little palm on the back thing. And yeah, that was yeah. it. So I, I couldn't I couldn't judge how small he really was because I didn't I didn't yeah. I'm making a, a hug motion. <laughs> But it, it makes me think about like the key and peel scene of like, oh my gosh, am I good enough to get a this level of handshake <laughs> or that? Or is this a reflection on my accomplishments of what <laughs> level of of greeting I get? Or yeah. Yeah. Did you guys get a certificate in regards to the firm award? We did. They sent these and they didn't give any warning or any indication that it was coming. We got these giant picture frames it's basically just a big frames letter that is from the president i think it was from peter actually about what the firm award means and why moody nolan is special even that moment of that photo is still a continuation of some of the surreal things of is this really happening i kind of bookended there's the letter originally after the phone call there's a formal PDF letter. They give you this big frame letter that they don't warn you. It just shows up in the mail one day. It's like, what is this giant package from the AIA? I'm jealous of you as a DC resident or at least in the DC area. At the AIA's headquarters, they have this big stone thing yeah. that says the firm award. So I've seen pictures of the name etched up there, like etched in stone. That's wow. really the part that's surreal. I mean, all of it's surreal, but yeah. Wow. Um, what made you guys go after it? You guys had a board meeting and it was like, we should go after this. So it's, I mean, it's, it's not the first time we've pursued it. And frankly, things happen. I, I mean, I'm a firm believer. I have to be that things happen for a reason. That year was actually a year that we had said, mm, we've submitted and gotten the debrief two or three times before. Maybe we give it a break this year. We literally considered it as a super stretch goal of, hey, you know, this is a part of even the effort of pursuing it is going to drive us to do better things and push us beyond. But we had said, it's a really heavy lift to submit because the submission was in 2020. Maybe this is not the year. But then um, get an email that Bill Bates, who finished his term as president, was coming to AI Columbus for something. And he had reached out and others at AI Columbus said, oh, Bill's going to be in town. It'd be great if he had time to stop by the office or something. So he did. He stopped by the office. We had great conversation. And I remember we did the fun, hey, take the picture in front of the sign. Thanks for coming by the office, social media. And I remember he got in the elevator and I looked over to my dad and I said, what if we asked Bill to nominate us? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was, you know, and he's got to be allowed to because he's no longer president, right? right? And if, if Bill endorses us, would we have a real legitimate shot? That was where the ball really got going on kind of a, what if, right? What mm-hmm. if this happened? And the story goes on. I don't know if you want that whole story or not, because it's, yeah, it was quite a year in the journey, as you can imagine. Yeah. Emotions. I mean, it is. It's just the emotions of our story, our narrative. Is this important to the AI? Is it not? I mean, and, and that first key thing of saying, hey, Bill Bates as a nominator and walking through that process, what does that mean? And then we hit summer of 2020 that we all remember. Well, first was the pandemic, right? Yeah. Like, could we even submit digitally? How does that even work? And really what I would say is like a coalescence around the message of who we are and why we feel our significance and relevance for that award. We kept building everything that we went through as a firm was a part of 
I'd say both backwards and forward, backward in the sense of so much of the submission is documenting the story of what 40 years had meant for us and what does this moment in time mean as we look forward and, and the relevance and significance of the war. And that was crafting and honing the message and not this picture and that file is going to be too big and we got to cut this out and add this in and talking to letter writers, talking to, yeah, I mean, they're letter writers, that part. Oh, yeah, I, I imagine you had the same. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It took us it took us a year. We met once a month, sometimes twice a month. We gave each other assignments. I totally feel you on that. Each of us have lives, especially with Primore and Dixon. Dixon's running a firm. She's teaching. She's a superstar in her own right. We meet on Saturday mornings. We'll yeah. like, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And just putting it all together, editing it. We took photos. We went up to Howard and took some, some candid photos. It was a process. So yes, yes, yeah. I got you. Yeah. And, and I do remember, I will, I will leave names out, but you, I'll let you make your own assumptions. But some of the, the profiles of the letter writers was pretty high mm-hmm. and they got a lot of other stuff to do. It was a big ask and it was like, hey, your letter might be what pushes us over the top. But then the deadline of, will we even get the letter back? Would they even submit in time? And kind of like a, who knows? All you can do is ask, <laughs> say, hey, yeah. are you on pace? Are you okay? need any help um, <laughs> anything we can do we can yes yeah you know, the deadline yes. is next week right you we, we right. haven't seen anything yeah 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 it was, it was journey so yeah so you said 40 years you yeah. guys been been yeah. together one of the things we mentioned offline is that we share a unique privilege of knowing black architects growing with black architects really briefly i am born and raised in washington dc and I, w- I attended a, a summer program over at Howard Architecture School, and that's when I fell in love with architecture, and that's when I met Barbara Laurie, and, and she was working at Devon Pinnell, and I interned there, and everything was in black. It was just, I didn't know the difference. How was your experience? And going to, for me, school was a culture shock, because I went from all black to all white, like mm. night and day, and mm. I didn't know how to navigate that space. So how was your experience, if if it's even similar to mine? Uh, d- similar but different. I think a similar thread, I didn't realize how huge it, and significant it was until until later. But it, it was the simple knowing that was a lot different. There's a narrative that some like to set up that I resist a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, where there's questions that come, like people like to interview my dad and I in pairs and they like to do this, like, hey, Kurt, you did this, this, and this, and you had to go through all this stuff and great. And then they turn and say, Jonathan, it's all better, right? <laughs> and I'm uh... like, no, not quite. But I would say knowing was hugely and tremendously different. Knowing in the sense of, I did not have the, is this even possible question? The answer to that question throughout some of the difficulties through that educational growing up journey was always, yes, it's possible. I've seen it all my life. So growing up, my thought were just family vacations. How come we got to go do this? And how come we got to, what do you mean? We can't, you know, my dad's not coming to this while we're on vacation because he's taking classes. And it's like, oh, we were at an AIA conference and I didn't realize it, right? I was just there visiting and he was there for work. But seeing how he interacted with people was a very subtle but purposeful message of, yes, we exist. Yes, we're real. 
yes, we can do this. And, and so that was always the answer to the question and how it evolved as from a business perspective, it always answered that question growing up of can a black business do this or can a black owned business do that? Yes. It was the answer was always yes. The only caveat is that be, sometimes things became a but. Is yes, but I grew up with stories of we had to do the, all these other things in addition to even be eligible for work, to even get certain business licenses, to get loans, to get all this stuff that you need to do. Yes, we were at a conference. The one that, I, that always stands out is the, the Boston conference where he was awarded the Whitney Young Award. And it was like, oh, yes, he's getting this award and it's great. This is possible. And you guys share that now. <laughs> but what is this award for? And what does it mean? Why is it so important for this award to be given out to my dad like right now? And it was always the knowledge that yes, we are, if it's possible, but things are a little different. One thing my dad and I talk about a lot is that we were both college athletes. I was more of a stretch in my opinion than he was of making it happen. But one of the questions that would come up, hey, I think it's possible to play football. Is that the possibility? Well, no, architects don't do that. Yes, I hear you, but my dad did it. Why is it quantified as impossible? Mm. I've got tangible examples that give me a little bit more kind of, I mean, call it safety net to fall back on of every time that some doubts or things crept up throughout my career, there was always the answer of, yes, it's possible. Mm -hmm but I might have to go about it a slightly different way in order to make it happen. That's amazing to me. I shouldn't say, no, amazing isn't the right word. It's, it's encouraging to yeah. even like growing up, having that example in front of you and yeah. then processing that if this person can do it, I've seen it done. I can do it too. So yeah. Yeah. So architectural education, how was it like for you? How was Cornell and how was UCLA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, completely different. So football was a thing, right? When I got there, I, I was technically a, a walk-on, but call it, I don't know, preferred walk-on or some, I don't know what terms you would use nowadays, but meaning I knew who the coaches were and they knew I was going to make this effort. But on one side of the message was, hey, you'd be a really good football player if you forget about this architecture thing. And on the other side of the message was, you might be a halfway decent architect if you forget about this whole football thing. And I, I was told that by everybody, including, I'll say, professors that I still hold in high regard. I think there's some of them are still at Cornell, so I'll leave them out. But like, hey, what are you doing? And and to a degree, there was a there are some unfortunate stigmas that go along with this that I did battle. The idea of a black athlete in college, especially at an Ivy League school, of are you only here? I mean, the answer is always the answer for me was I was accepted into the architecture school and I was I was attempting to play football. But a lot of the questions are are you only here because you might play football? Are you becoming that athlete that like, oh, you're just here, you know, all of these other things that are unfairly associated with athletes. Mm -hmm. I inherited those, even though it was like, not me at all. And then on top of that, you get the like, what are you trying to do? This is crazy thing. But what it was the beginnings of was one of the things that I still, I, I to this day feel is a very fair criticism of the profession and education which was so much of the profession and, and education around it is pointed internally. So it, that was the beginning of the question from the architecture side of like, what do you mean you have interest outside of architecture? 
mm. right? Like you're here to get an architectural education. Everything you need to do is about architecture. Otherwise you're not gonna make it. And it was like, well, I just wanna try, right? Like that was, that was all it was. I just wanted to try. So that was a fascinating beginning. The attitude and advice for many was like that the only way to be successful in architecture school was to make everything about architecture. You have all these elective classes that should be theory and they should be architectural drawing and the theory of architectural drawing and the theory of the history of architectural drawing. So, and so football was an escape. It was a chance to get away and think differently, which actually was a tremendous help for me of like a, you, we all have those moments of like, you're really frustrated with the project and you're not sure if it's good or not. And then you leave for a while and you come back and you're like, oh, it's not as bad as I thought and you can continue on. So I, it also forced me to manage my time a lot differently. And I think a very key difference is never showed up with the, well, I'll work into it's done attitude of like, I may be here all night. I'll just work until it's done. It's like, look, I got from this time to this time, I got to get as much done as I can within that time. Cause I need to get a certain amount of rest before these workouts or I got practice or I got something else to do. The, the other thing too, is like, I, I wondered, I saw, you know, I had peers and friends and others who were outside of architecture and I wondered, uh, I had interest in what they were doing. So like, Hey, you know, my dad said I should take some business classes. So what are you guys doing over there? And I think one key one, you know, we, we were required to take a writing class and I, my first freshman year writing class uh, was in, in the Africana studies, Africana department. And I kind of was like, well, hmm, well, this is an interesting disconnect, but it feels like literally it was a writing course about home in the Africana department. And so for me, first time really like being away from home, it was first of all, like arguably traumatic of like, oh, I'm so sad. I miss home and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But then defining home through that lens of what it means to be an African-American, like a, Hey, well, why don't I take another class the next semester in Africana studies and be, and it led to a minor in Africana studies and a real question architectural education, because so many of the things that I was learning about, about like you call it the real deeper history of the civil rights movement and a lot of sociological concerns. It was like, wait, a lot of the things we talk about from an urban planning standpoint seems like you could leverage or have a really useful input from a sociology, like more database perspective, like on purely sociology and not just diagrams, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of school, draw it out and you'll figure it out. It's like, what if you actually interview people? And I think where I sit now is my architectural education is tremendous and it's important, but I find myself having to rely so much more on the Africana studies part for things like community engagement, like working on a Martin Luther King library, not just, hey, tell me about the dream speech. Can you do a little bit of research? But it's like, hey, what is his real sociological community-driven initiatives and how could that impact a library design and what does the community need to know about his perspective on things like you know they call them like education centers being like knowledge places where people learn about being a a, a viable voting base right thinking about it through that lens was like hey that was helpful for me and so that was Cornell and then moved out to LA most of that was very arguably vain about I was so tired of cold weather it was I I needed a break and moved out to LA and it was it was a lot different I was only there at UCLA for a year but I had to, I kind of continued that same thing but I was more focused on one of the things that my dad had said which was it would help if I took a few business classes so while I was at UCLA 
took negotiation, took managerial finance, which I still was rough. That was rough. Took a real estate development class. And again, those are the things that I know a little bit about them, but enough that when we have a meeting with our bank or our, our tax people that I understand the needs and the interactions from a business standpoint. And it's fascinating to me because it still drives a critique I have of architectural education that we make everything about the thing, the things, the thing and the things we create and not necessarily the people and functions that facilitate the making of the things like for a while before moving back to Columbus. Huh? So in printing on your Africana studies into your designs, was that avant-garde for others who like, let's like when you were in Cornell and doing your projects or you didn't go immediately back to Moody Nolan after graduation, right? So your other architectural jobs or even competitions or anything like that of the sort. Not early on professionally. I really embrace the I need to sit here and learn from other people. I got to work at the Yazdani studio of Canon Design for Murdad Yazdani. He he was there in Chicago. It was kind of this full circle moment of <laughs> congratulations and <laughs> and I owe you all the credit for helping me get my start. Like but I really I started out just really learning and I mostly built models for Murdad as he was studying ideas or helped him think through things. Mm. I embraced a lot about what he would say is the point of school is to help you learn how to think. And he helps me learn how to build. And, and because it is, it's like a very specific, you know, not every architect draws differently, details differently. And you, what I did not have any bearing on in mostly theory-based schools was how to actually put a building together. I learned a lot about it, how to think through things with Murdad. And I understood a lot about how he developed a thought process and approach. And that really led to, you know, when I got to Moody Nolan and was first asked to lead a design on a project to be able to answer the question, well, how would I lead a design effort and what would be the things like that I would make it personal for me? And also a driver for the the minor in Africana studies was was what I did know. I knew that black architects existed and I knew that I was going, I was hoping to be one of them one day, but I also knew we were not a 13% group, right? We were a small but mighty, which also said, the reality is if there's a, a project in a black neighborhood, I'm probably gonna be the only black architect they know. And I would like to know something other than like I said, I have a dream or Rosa right. Parks didn't get up or, you know, yeah. so it was like, I want to really know, and, and part of it too, it began with that home class of questioning, what is my home and where am I from? But like, it, it was a journey of identity. There's always the, the Carter G. Woodson of if you can co- control the education of a person that you can control the person themselves. I never wanted to feel like I was in a position that I had to be told my history. Like I wanted to be like, I know my history. Mm-hmm. You're not telling me in this meeting. And I will tell you, that was in 2020, the summer of 2020, that was a fascinating thing because I didn't quite realize that that was a privilege. And, and I, when I say that, there are things that I witnessed that I would question people's motivations as to why they were doing it. For example, in Columbus, people had staged sit-ins in a downtown neighborhood. I would read stories in the news of people saying, we're going to turn the hoses on people. And I'm like, you know, is this history repeating itself? Like, are you saying that like kind of tongue in cheek or as a joke? But then I realized a lot of people really 
don't know exactly what happened during the civil rights movement. It was like, we're inventing some new things. And it's like, no, that's literally exactly what they said 50 years ago. That's crazy. Yeah. Talking about community development, I briefly, for your knowledge, grew up in the projects in D.C. And I wanted to become an architect because I felt like no one should live in those conditions. So Mm. going through architecture school and not seeing my community being addressed, going from firm to firm, not seeing my community being addressed, seeing this cultural erasure cultural erasure, I can't say that, erasure. Yeah. Um, I'm on an advisory board, this area called Berry Farm. It's a housing project, a very large area. The community got together, got a couple of buildings, historic landmark. This history, rich, rich, rich history that we researched to get this landmark designation. And the frustrating part for me was that the design firm didn't bother with that. Have you encountered that or are aware of that? Do you have any stories of that or anything come to mind when I say that stuff? Yeah, yeah. and it, it it's the knowledge in, of, in context that's broader of place, but kind of the uncertainty of what the path forward is correctly, knowing and empathizing with the frustration of a community. There's a community we worked in there. It was one of the oldest on the site was one of the oldest housing projects in the nation, but (laughs) they were terrible buildings, like terrible. There's history there, right? The history of the place, but the buildings don't necessarily represent that history. One of the design challenges that I personally struggle with, I actually understand where you're coming from, but this is not quite the same design problem. We're tearing down a historic building And we find ourselves, I tell our staff all the time that we have to, we don't, it's funny being on (laughs) this podcast, we don't have to be deeply ingrained in politics, but we have to be aware of them, right? Be aware of why Moody Nolan may have been hired for this certain project. Just don't go in and just say, well, I'm just here to do this, this, and this. It's like, no, take your head out of the sand and look around and be like, all right, why is it so important for them to hire us for this project? So coming to those meetings with this tension and I'll say almost a sense of agony from the developer of like, look, we own these buildings, we own this site and we are trying to do something good for the community. But yet everything we put out is going to be met with friction and distrust because of such a deep rooted history of distrust. Knowing that, right? And knowing where people are really coming from and why it it becomes a journey of conversation Mm -hmm. about trying to get people to understand that I hear you and understand, but this is not that other neighborhood that you're thinking about or that you read about where they came and they raised all the buildings. I remember there were these 12 by 12 bricks, like 12 inch by 12 inch solid brick units, two-story buildings. And the room layouts, the largest living rooms were eight foot by 10 foot and bedrooms were six foot by six foot. And it's trying to say, look, I understand why you want to save these buildings, but to save these buildings would create inhumane housing conditions. And it's like, there's history of this place, but we need to talk through how do we celebrate that history in a different way? Because just saving the buildings, where I find myself to this day a little bit in the dynamic of what we do is the knowledge that and feeling powerless as an architect at times that like, look, in the development game, right? That's what we're... That's what by we're the time. Doing. 
that the time they've hired an architect, a lot of the decisions that you think are open-ended questions have already been decided. And it's very much, a, you're either going to get this or you're going to get nothing. <laughs> Look, we were hired. We know this community. We need to get them something good that's in the middle. But that's where I find myself oftentimes is recognizing that, um, recognizing that there's distrust. <laughs> And I represent a part of that distrust as the professionals that are hired to come in and soothe over our frustrations. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but that's not me. (laughs) So like, and I am like actually here to try and do as much good as we can. So how do we get to good? And one of the things that I do, a question that comes up that I do struggle to articulate, you you know, you said, if you can, if you can see it, you can be it. And that makes a difference, right? One thing that I do know if, I show up, right, and people see my face and and hear me, it comes across a lot differently than other professionals. Yeah. And and people say, oh, well, how do you do this? Or, I'm like, I don't know how to tell you how to show up and, and look and talk like me, but it makes a big difference. And, and in certain communities, it's just it's just a fact. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it could just be, a, it's a relatability too. Yeah. You, you look like my cousin, uncle's friend, neighbor. Yeah. You know, it could be as simple as that. You sound just like somebody or, you know, it's, or yeah. it just, it could just be your smile. Like it could just be a, a warm yeah. welcoming too. Like you're, you know, and you're right in terms of, especially with these community gatherings, people, if they come there frustrated, this is the first time all their issues may be addressed. They've been complaining about this and that. Their fear, anger, all the seven dwarfs emotions yeah. <laughs> that, that goes on. Really quickly, I see that we only have like 20 minutes left. So I want to okay. touch upon Noma. And again, growing up Noma, both me and you, you guys mm-hmm. recently opened up a chapter there. In What's Columbus, the process? Yeah of opening up a chapter i need five people boom you have a chapter like how does that work well there there's the process and there's what i had hoped for and what i encouraged behind the scenes to happen i do know also yes i know the value of what a noma chapter represents from so many different angles and there's there's a at least in my 11 years of being back working professionally in columbus it hadn't existed but i also had bigger, I had really big concerns about what is the identity of the chapter beyond a small group of people. Because one of the fears I had, and I still hear this to this day, is what is the difference between a chapter and if your local AIA chapter has a committee on diversity? Are they the same thing? Are they different? More of the concern was that some of the things we all have frustrations with of basically in the nonprofit world, because that's what it is, the same people being always asked to do everything, even when it comes to conversations like the importance of diversity in the network that helps build confidence, companionship, all those things. You can't keep asking the same people to make that happen. It's like you can't keep putting the stress on the same people. But what I had witnessed and the acknowledgement of like, look, I think this would be great. But if you ask me personally, like, what is my time and capacity to make this happen? None. But what what I witnessed, I would go to things, events at Ohio State, and I would get connected and meet people who said they were part of the No Moss chapter, not directly affiliated. And after a few years of hearing that same thing, we started wondering, there's kind of a behind the scenes group of firms and professionals that were, wait, if every year y'all are graduating X number of No Moss students that are all working at our firms, 
why don't we have a professional chapter? So it was, I mean, there was a group of them that did come together and say, yeah, we all knew each other from school or we all do this and we need help. And I'm like, well, I think there's a lot of us who would love to see this happen. And we would love to see you as a next generation take leadership and ownership of this. And we would absolutely be here to support you, but you got to lead it. So it was always funny when I would call in for some of the, the calls when they were thinking about it, of things that you need, a website, a formal application to be a nonprofit, which means you need bylaws and you need, and it was like, hey, if you need members or if you need somebody to carrot or stick of, hey, look, you know, reach out to this person at this firm or that one, I'm happy to make those <laughs> calls and say, look, you need to be participating in this or I'm highly encouraging you <laughs> to participate. But when it comes to, all right, somebody's got to do the website design. I'm like, yo, young people. Yeah, yeah, y'all yeah, can handle that stuff. Yeah, yeah so, they, so they did, they did. And then it finally came to, it culminated. One of the things I think about is the difference between an AI conference and a NOMA conference. And AI conference was amazing. It's different than a NOMA conference. I always say a NOMA conference feels like a family reunion, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, and we ha they had that first event. And, you know, when Sandra came down from Detroit, and and Nicole came up from Cincinnati Aww. and and even at a regional level right we had there was so much energy and excitement but it felt like a family gathering in Columbus Ohio I was so proud they were over there you know president vice president secretary a treasurer and I'm like hey you got it <laughs> like, wow we're here to support you but I'm excited for what you'll do so that yeah I think officially spring of this year they became okay. a chapter yeah Yay. That's amazing. That's why I love Noma. That's why I, I love everybody. There's no hierarchy. We're just all together, hanging yeah. out, just vibing and have a, a commonality called architecture. Do you have any questions for me before we wrap up? I don't want to put you on the spot on your podcast, but how was your journey? through this last year, writing the Vortex and all the things that you've been through. You talked a little bit about the conference. You talked a little bit about the process of submitting and letters, but that part in the middle of you got announced, right? And Oh yeah. So it was crazy, right? Cheryl McAfee was our nominator mm -hmm. and she called me and I was like, did she butt down me? Like what's going <laughs> on? And so I picked up the phone. She's like, yeah. Do you know what Kathy is? Pray more. And I was like, she's probably at work because mm. she teaches at Virginia Tech. So she, they were like, oh, well, it's very, very important. She gives <laughs> me a call. And then I called her daughter, Crystal. Mm. And I was like, Crystal, you know where your mother is? And she's like, why? I was like, well, people are looking for her. And mm. she's like, oh, she's in class. So I was like, okay, that explains. So I called Cheryl back and I was like, she's in class. She won't get out till like eight, nine o'clock or something like that. She's like, okay. That call was to let her know that we won the Whitney M. Young. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there was a bunch of people on the call. Yeah. Like they put you nobody on told you. Yeah, nobody told me that, at least. So, yeah. Called you. Oh, the president. And oh, is it oh, gosh. Dan? No, from South Carolina. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, this is going to drive me crazy. Because I'm like, her name, I just saw her at the conference and it was fine. I was so fun to actually tell her the story about, about the call. But yeah, it, was, it showed up on my, from a South Carolina number. Oh, I can see her face. Oh my gosh. And they I called you like in the middle of the day too, right? Yeah, I, I, 
I was afraid because, hold on, I'm, I'm gonna, Jane Frederick, yes. Yeah, this is Jane Frederick. I remember, yeah, but the problem was I knew that if it was a possibility that they would call on this day. Okay. And so I was terrified the whole day. Like I, uh-huh. like I literally, I held my phone because it's like, it's both ways. It's like, oh my, because all they do, and I know why they do it, but it's still, y'all need to rethink this for the stress level of the people y'all are dealing mm-hmm. with. But mm-hmm. they say, if you win, you, you will get a call. So both things, every hour, every minute that goes by, no call yet. What does that mean? Oh. Right? But then also the fear of, do I do this or do I wait? Because they might call. So it was a lot of that. I didn't know that they call you on speaker. And <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have a clue, like clue. Yeah. So I won the Associates Award a couple of years ago and I got an email. Mm. And so I was expecting an email, yeah. an email for Prigmore because she was the one that submitted. So yeah. I was expecting her to either tax or a forward of the email saying that we won or didn't win or whatever. But they finally got a hold of her. She said she had like a ridiculous amount of missed calls. Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> Everybody was calling her. Like everybody yeah. was calling her. And then, you know, we're like, oh my God, we won. Oh my God, we won. Okay, so yeah. quick. Let me tell you this quick story. So with the Whitney M. Young Award, you can get fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. So when we applied, so I'm not licensed. So mm-hmm. I knew I was going to get fellowship. And I looked at it. We all looked at it. And it said, if you win, you get fellowship if you're qualified or something mm-hmm. in, in that sense. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm not qualified. But Catherine is. She mm. she fits all the criteria. She's been licensed for over 10 years. She does all this other amazing stuff. So when we won, we were like just anticipating this extra email, that announcement of her yeah. being fellow. And that never came. And so we were like, well, what's going on? When we contacted Honors and Awards, they were like, well, it's not up to us. It's up to the College of the Fellows. The question is, did you submit this application to the College of the Fellows? And they were like, no. Hmm. And so we were like, okay. So another email was sent or like a letter or something was sent. And essentially they said, because we're a group, we don't qualify. It was just like, what? Like it said nothing on the web, like. We all like look and they were like, well, you, you supposed to go in the, in the college of the fellows resolution bylaws, one of those things. And it kind of clarifies that. And I'm like, no one's going to look into that. Why would you do that? So it's very discouraging. Um, And I, you know, for sure, there was a happy ending to this story. (laughs) Like, oh, well, we just had to check this box or like, oh, they don't tell you. And then all of a sudden they just stick a pin on you one day. And I'm like, yeah, well, we're obviously we will support uh, Catherine in any way, shape. I offered my graphic skills for her application, but you know, it's like, she's going to drag, I'm not putting words in her mouth or anticipate, but if it was me, I don't even know if I would even bother because mm. you have to pay for the application fee yeah. and you have to go through all this yeah, and then all maybe, 
maybe, maybe not, she'll get it because she's going through the, the traditional selection, and, you know, which, which path you yeah. want to go through and all that stuff. Like it's, yeah. I don't know. And, and I do, I, I can already feel at least like my personal feeling is like, I, I struggle with this from time to time of there's the, hey, things happen for a reason, that kind of thing. But then there's, the, I have to convince myself not to be spiteful like I don't even want it now like I know, um, I know. like ain't gonna apply if y'all don't want to give it to me because and yeah could imagine feeling a certain kind of way of, but it I guess for for me it, it reflects and points to kind of one of the the continued struggles uh, that I think the profession has and there's a long way to go which is the perception and intrigue around the exclusivity of it that story just reeks of, well, you have to do this, this, and this, because we're not just talking like, you know, an SAT application or right. a college. We keep looking into the profession internally for answers and all the answers are outside. And one of the things we like fundamentally since college, since everything is we keep asking the question, oh, how come there aren't enough architects? And yet the answer to all of it is we keep telling everybody in so many different ways that we don't want you to be an architect. The constant reminders of if you are anywhere outside of this very fixed idea of what the ideal architect is, the profession has a way of telling you, we don't want you. Like, yeah, we, we only want you if you fit this mold in this very specific way. And then, and then we ask like, oh, how come there's not enough architects to do the work? And it's like, you, you keep saying it, right? And yeah, it's... I'm sorry you guys are having to go through that. That's... Yeah. Well, on the bright side, we met Obama. Bringing yeah. it back full circle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and I have to imagine that the outreach you've gotten since, and even if you don't know it, even if you hadn't seen it, something I can see as an outsider and observe, but just kind of what you're inspiring in terms of a next generation, even that same conversation around is this possible? Or even if the profession says it doesn't want me, I think you're saying to people, but you can, if you want to. Um, yeah, like I can't imagine the look you might get if you go visit, if you go back to Howard, right? And see some of the aspiring architects, the, the look on their face probably says it all to you. Yeah, um, you're right, wow. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness, Jonathan, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I had fun. So. Yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, right, bye. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating the show, and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week but it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I wanna keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins. 
and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.